Presents Inside Out with Turner and Seth. Hey Rob, that was the quickest Turner you've ever had. But there's well, still a little bit of a pause there. Well, you, you seem to think it's too early in the show for such a dramatic pause. So I'm, I'm trying to wean myself of that. Speaking of wean, have, when's the last time you saw that band? That's a forced analogy. That's a forced um, thing. You didn't really want to talk about wean. You want to talk about Spafford? Yes, we will get to Spafford. Uh, a young and up-and-coming band from the Arizona area. Um, we, Well, I had a, a pleasure of sitting down with Quickly here at the Electric Forest just to check in with them because they're one of the bands doing the uh, Baker's Dozen post-late-night shows, so post-Baker's Dozen Fish in New York City. So they talk about that and a couple other things. They have a huge tour announcement as well. So we'll get into that in a little bit here in the intro. Uh, this episode is going to feature Randall Bramblett. And Rob, what, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of a taste of what we're going to get into here well we talk about randall's early days um i swear seth i thought he had been part of the muscle shoals all-stars but apparently not apparently he started in making with capricorn or or maybe we just never got around to talking about that but uh, he ended up finding his way we learned he found his way into cowboy which was a big southern rock band featuring tommy Totten and scott boyer if any of you eric clapton fans have the 461 ocean boulevard album please be with me that's a cowboy song and um, then we hear about this is how he met Greg Allman and he played with Greg Allman in the 70s. And then we learn about Sea Level, which was kind of a jazzy outgrowth of the Allman Brothers. And we move into the 80s um, and learn about how he met Steve Winwood and all sorts of things. And um, I don't know, I, I really enjoyed this record. And. Um, well, I don't know. It's just a, a great uh, interview. I wanted to point, and I'm I'm confident saying it this time. This is a great interview, in my opinion. I, I love it. I just listened, been listening to it all day. I, I love it. And widespread um, panic we fans, get into, we get into the panic stuff. Don't worry. We do definitely talk a lot about panic there. 
we get into the Traffic 1994 tour, one of my favorite tours ever, maybe my favorite rock reunion tour ever. I went to eight of those, and we really get into the nuts and bolts on that. Uh, right up front, we talk about his two most recent records, though, because he has really knocked the ball out of the park with these last two records. Most recently, the Jukebox, uh, Juke Joint at the End of the World, and uh, Edge of the World, excuse me, because that is better. I thought about it. At the Edge, not at the end, at the Edge of the World. Much better title. And Devil Music, we talk about, which is a really, really cool album. And we also uh, talk about his band. He's got a killer band, um, you know, and, and the evolution of his band. But a uh, big shout out to our friend Nick Johnson, who is a phenomenal guitar player. And um, Randall will, will share more information about Nick on our uh, episode here. And Nick, Nick Johnson also will be part of a major announcement forthcoming regarding this program. Yes. Yeah, speaking of the program, um, right now, Rob, well, one you last sound... Thing. Go ahead, one, Rob. One last thing real quick. Nashville, studio, Nashville uh, Soundstage. How about sending a, a DVD to Nancy Lewis Bagel, Brilliant Productions, since Randall worked on that piece oh, on, yeah, that, yeah, on the DVD. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry, Seth. Yeah, no Take worries. It, so Rob is in uh, Atlanta uh, at our undisclosed location, and uh, I am in Michigan, Rothbury, Michigan, uh, where the second of two back-to-back electric forests are taking place. And just like the first, it's a little wet outside. Uh, but uh, blue skies in the horizon for the weekend, it looks like. That's dangerous, Seth, all that water being around electricity. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you throwing a Seth joke out there. That's, uh, oh boy. I do it mockingly, though. Um, hey, uh, in the news this week um, was another cancellation to a festival, festival cancellation, one in which my company, Wet, was involved uh, and... Um, is no longer involved, obviously, right? Because the festival's not happening. They, they're calling this one a postponement. Uh, Carindinia. The name of the festival, Seth? Yes. The Car- name of the festival? Carindinia. Uh, they, uh, they canceled this. It's a new pe- festival in Pennsylvania. Chance of Rapper was one of the headliners. Uh, but here's, Ooh. here you know, they went dark yesterday. Their website shut off. They came back on this morning with a message basically saying that they're postponing. Uh, other festivals like Deep Roots, in, um, which is taking place where all good festivals used to t- uh, take place in, in uh, Marvin's Mountain in West Virginia, they are they put out that if you are a ticket holder to Carandinia, bring your ticket and get free admission to their festival, which I thought was interesting. It's like, okay, I get that. Yeah, that's a really nice thing to do to the scene. Like, but these guys have no affiliation with that festival. So if if like a hundred or five hundred or a thousand people come they're basically giving away free tickets which yeah that's going to be good for their revenue in, in the back end you know when they have concessions and things like that but still that's all that's a that's a hefty uh, amount of tickets just to give away um what i'm curious i have a hunch i have a hunch yeah go for I it i have a hunch Seth. remember our counterpoint festival here almost got canceled and the last minute someone stepped in and sort of saved it yeah but then that person owned the name maybe this person even though the festival's canceled maybe this person who's helping out and doing this is getting a percentage of the name if the festival chooses to continue moving forward? Maybe, but the fest I, as a business owner, doubt the festival is going to continue. I have not received payment. Uh, there's several other vendors out there that have not received a deposit. Um, and in a situation like this, you don't expect to get paid the whole amount, but work has been done and work and money is due. And when the promoters and everyone just go stop returning phone calls, emails, and go dark, um, who wants a piece of that? Because if this, if in, if in your case, what you're saying, now that new person, that new shareholder is going to be responsible to pay us vendors. And I don't think anyone wants that. Uh, looks like most, if not all the artists were paid, if not in full, then, then close to it. So, you know, they got a free ride there. So that's but. your, that, that, 
That's your opinion as a business owner? Yeah. I, I, I what's don't... your opinion as a podcast? What's your What's your opinion as a podcast? Well, he, as was I was getting to is I would is like different? to I would like to you, know Rob. You, I would like to know from you have our different listen, opinions for your different functions. Hey, hey, Rob. I know you're on a cell phone, but you gotta, you gotta, you gotta uh, clear the air here. So what I'd like to do is reach out to our listeners, and I'm curious what their take is on these cancellations, uh, festivals being a ticket holder, and on the ticket holder side, how weary are you to purchase a ticket uh, that far in advance of of a festival now, knowing that they can cancel and actually keep all of your money? Um, so email us inside out wtns at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts, and we'll share them on the air. You still there, Rob? <laughs> we might have lost Rob. Sure. Oh, there he is. He's back. He's back. All right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that that's in the news there. Uh, so why don't we break here? Let's go back to last weekend uh, when I had a chance to sit down with Spafford. Uh, they're going to talk a little bit about, like I said, their tour and uh, the after shows uh, coming up at the New York Postfish Baker's Dozen. So let's go into that. We're here at Electric Forest, and we're talking to Spafford. All right, guys. Yeah. Welcome, welcome. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you very much for that wonderful intro. So we are here at Electric Forest. We're actually uh, at the wet office. Uh, thank you, Work Exchange team, for allowing us to record here in your fan staffing office. Uh, gentlemen, introduce yourselves. My name's Red. I play uh, keys. My name's Brian. I play guitar. I'm Jordan, and I play the bass. My name is Cameron, and I play the drums. That was Cameron. He plays the drums. Hey. He doesn't have to use a mic. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, uh, listen, we're, um, I appreciate your time, guys. Uh, and like I mentioned before, we definitely want to have a full interview with you. And my co-host, Rob, definitely has some questions for you. But he's not here currently at Electric Forest, uh, maybe next year. But um, I just want to do a quick check-in. Uh, so, a couple things. One, you guys are headlining the Baker Dozen late-night shows, doing one of the uh, late-night shows for Live for Live Music. So, let's talk a little bit about that. And also, you guys have a huge... Fall tour announced. Uh, I want to hear about that as well. So let's talk about Baker's Dozen. What, what's going on with that? Uh, Baker's Dozen, uh, I believe we're playing the last Saturday night. Um, it's a big night for all those crazy fish fans going out to the city. And we are playing BB Kings. Um, ticket sales are going really well right now, so it should be a packed house. And we're really pumped to uh, to be there for, for You know BB is dead, right? Yeah. What? Okay. Yeah, you didn't know that. I did. I was being funny. Oh, you're not playing with BB King. Yeah. You're playing at BB King. Okay. Yes. I was looking at the levels and I got all confused. Yeah. <laughs> How long have you guys been traveling and touring? We've been traveling for quite a few years. Um, we we left Prescott, Arizona, which was our our home base. Um, it probably in 2011 was the first time that we got we got out. So um, we've just been doing it DIY for for many years, and only recently have been uh, you know picked up and and have full representation. Gotcha. But meanwhile, rep- representation wise, you guys have a pretty uh, solid fan base. From what I understand, uh, comparable to P Groove, Perpetual Groove when they started, also Upfreeze McGee. I've heard comparisons to uh not they're playing in music but in the uh in the fan base that that they're you know really big advocates of you all and and you know they'll it wouldn't be surprising if you went you know two three four five six hundred miles and saw some familiar faces right oh it happens all the time and it's been happening for for quite a while it's um our fan base is very very dedicated and we're very grateful for them you know the um music scene in in arizona 
um, is, I mean, it's a phenomenal music scene, but it's a, it's a pretty tight knit group of people. But the, the good part for it, for at least us is that there's not very many people that are actually from Arizona. Everybody comes from different parts of the country. Uh, so, you know, it, it may be a small tight knit crew of people, but their voices really carry. And I, I, me personally, at least I, I say, I, I attribute a lot of, you know, our, our growth over the past few years to that, that, you know, people see us play a, a show in, in Phoenix and they, you know, they're from Baltimore and they want to call all their buddies in Baltimore and say, Hey, they're going to be in Baltimore. Come and check them out, you know, or, or Philadelphia or Chicago or, well, Montana. they wouldn't be lying if they said this band's on fire because it's fucking hot in Arizona yes, right is. now. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is warm. And you guys have a big fall tour lined up. Uh, this is the biggest one to date. Yes, it is. Um, I, th- I think our first tour is in 2013. The poster just popped up on like a social media feed as like the 2013 summer tour, and there's like ten dates over the course of like the entire summer. You know, kind of dipping into Colorado, and this one's like forty something. Like, just all us um, running, like I said, from Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine. You know, wow. Or at least maybe it's Portland, Maine mm-hmm. to Portland, Oregon. I think that's the order. But it's the biggest thing that we've ever tried to accomplish. Yeah. And uh, and you actually, uh, you your announcement was with a animation uh, that was uh, well done, well put together. I felt like getting in a convertible myself. Psychedelic one at that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 So yeah, and then uh, and some big stops. Uh, you know, here you're playing Electric Force. You got a, a, a show at the Forest tonight, and next week you're back and you're doing another set. So that's a, that's some great exposure. And then all the way, I guess the next time also you guys will be Halloween in Florida. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Halloween. We're super excited about that. Um, Dominican holidays as well in December. Oh yeah, you guys are doing Dominican. I don't yep. know if I'm going to be doing Dominican this year, <laughs> even though I've done every single one. But uh, hey, you know. Yeah, we still have. Peach Festival and Workout Festival as well uh, this year. I hope everything works out with you guys there. We do too, yeah. That's a good fest, though. Young, that's another great band to, that uh, we can compare in, uh, in a lot of growth and whatnot. I mean, they're, so, so in that sense, are you guys thinking about doing your own festival as well, like the Big Something Does and the Workout? Is that in the works? We definitely think about it. We yeah. think about it all the time. <laughs> so if you have money and you're interested in sponsoring the festival... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and want to do it in Arizona. Oh, yeah. That's what we want. We want That's to get really people to come experience, come hang out just outside of Phoenix in December and go watch music outside. You well, could be on the east freezing, or you yeah. could be on the west in the sunshine in the middle of December, and you could be outside. It's, you know, eventually we're going to get people <laughs> to come see why we've been out there doing what we've been doing. <laughs> well, isn't there a, there's a Lost Lake Festival that's happening in Phoenix this year, right? And that yeah. the new Superfly uh, Festival? Yeah, yeah, that just popped up. Yeah. Which we're not on. Yeah. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Rick, hey. what are you doing there? Come on. <laughs> uh, and so going back to the Baker's Dozen, why would you say someone should go after fish to go see you guys? What's, what, not say why, but what... Give give a uh, give some reasons why people might want to see you all. Because Spafford is fun. Because Spafford is fun. I like that one. And new and exciting, and you know. Was there any special kind of, guests? Uh, not planned. I mean, I don't know. We never really seem to plan that. It kind of happens if someone's around, you know. But I mean, as of now, it's just a show. That's how we started. We started this year basically in New York after Fish doing two nights, late night. And at American Beauty, and it was 
think it was amazing for everyone involved. And so like, we we're just happy to be able to do that again, especially at, at like the culmination of the end of an event like this for fish to do their residency, like in their way. And then at the very end of it, you know, we're going to be there. Like, I think hey. the, the beauty of what we do is we really, we really don't plan anything. So mm-hmm. that's why people are coming constantly to, to the shows because they don't know what to expect, but we don't know what to expect either. You guys write set lists? We write set lists, yeah, and, and sometimes don't follow them. <laughs> sometimes it's just more of a suggested framework. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, but if something's going somewhere, then we're all feeling it, then we go there. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, we're going to tech back with you guys here in the next couple months and definitely do a, a full interview with you all. Um, but uh, if people want to check you out, uh, do you have any recommendations other than just your website? Um, there's a, a great new website that came out, uh, spaffnerds.com. Um, nice. uh, it's, a, it's a fan-run website that we've, uh, you know, just recently, you know, heard about. And, and it seems there's a lot of activity over there. It's It's got... You know, it goes in great depths of finding all the shows that you want, YouTube videos of everything. Um, the creators of that website are are magnificent, so um, check that out for some good all right, stuff. Well, thank you guys so much. Appreciate your time, and uh, we look forward to seeing you guys in New York City. For those who are there, or for me, I'll see you guys at Halloween. Right on. Awesome. Right. Thanks, Thanks man. Well, there you go, folks. That was Spafford. And if you're going to be in the New York area for fish, definitely check out liveforlivemusic.com. They have a plethora of post-shows, after-shows taking place all around the city. And if you're not going to be there, that's totally cool. Because you can check out Spafford as they go from West Coast to East Coast and back West. Portland to Portland, as they said. Um, Yeah, so check them out and check out the dates. uh, Again, liveforlivemusic.com. Rob, I want to give a shout out to our engineer, Josh Thane, who's been working extremely hard on all of our shows, including last week we did, what did we do? We did two episodes. We released two episodes. Two two episodes, one of which is not going to see the light of day, which is, I mean, Seth has been working really hard lately on some things that we can't talk about yet. But as far as putting together the episodes side of things, that's mainly our engineer, Josh, and myself. So losing that episode... You know, that's we lose a lot of hours of work and it's very frustrating. And Josh had to put together two. And then this episode you're listening to now has a lot of elements in it, a lot of stuff we had to move around. It's also a lot of work, really demonstrating Josh's skills. And he is fantastic. He works at Wonder Dog Sound Studio. And I'm going out to his little venue next weekend. Well, I'm going to Chicago this weekend, but the weekend after that, I'm going to go to his hunt house and uh, check it out the indoor version and i'll go back and check out the outdoor version so i'll come back the hunt house in marietta it's supposed to be sweet and uh, for those that don't know josh thane he is with wonder dog sound studios he's a re- uh, recording engineer a live music engineer and generally uh, and generally a wonderful human being uh pleasure to person to be around and um what else would you say there mr turner ladies tell me he's hot well, um, whatever that's worth. Well, when you say ladies, he's he's talking about his wife, of course. She's never said it to me. Oh <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> she's uh, awesome too. She's really cool. I run into her randomly more than I do him. Well, I ran into her on the way into Dead and Company at uh at Lakewood. <laughs> hey, Rob, listen, um, you we've got some stuff to get into here, but we also have some special. Uh, we're gonna do something at the end. We're this episode is gonna be a little bit constructed differently uh, because Rob, go ahead and explain what we're gonna do right now. Okay, first of all, we're gonna play 
Randall gave us two exclusive songs. We're going to play one of them up front because it's a lead single. It's uh, I just don't have the time. It's kind of pokes fun at the more extreme fans who get a little selfish when they get around musicians. Randall loves his fans. I just saw him play here at the Vista Room, and he mingled with the crowd. He, he's not anti his fans. It's just the more extreme fans can get a little selfish, a little, uh, I don't know, what they just can, can be disrespectful of the time of the musician, think they're more interesting than they are and babble endlessly, disrespectful of the people in, behind them in line who are waiting to talk to the musician. And I just don't have the time is the name of the song. And it, it's kind of a clever, funny lyric, and I get a kick out of it. Yeah, great, great then, tune, and it was very nice for him to record uh, to perform that in front of us. The first time I heard that song too, and and uh, I I <laughs> got a good laugh out of it. But it's 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 good. Take it with the fun. Take it fun. Go ahead, man. One of my favorite things of this podcast so far, Seth, has been the times where it's just you and me and our engineer and the musician, and they're playing for us. That just really, really gets me. I love that. That is special stuff. Um, also, this interview was conducted a couple couple months ago when we were in Athens to see David Barbie. We also went by Randall's house. He's very kind of lessons house. But since then, we've lost Colonel Bruce Hampton. We've lost Greg Allman. We've lost Jimmy Knowles. Three wonderful musicians, each of which Randall knew pretty well. So he's kindly um, accepted our offer to do a, a kind of a bump, if you will, uh, a follow-up interview. That'll be part of our outro, and we'll address those three losses painful losses particularly greg which i don't know i'm sure you folks know greg allman around the world but you know here in georgia losing greg is it's kind of like san francisco when 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 jerry was lost this is a big deal here this is this is a state day of mourning kind of thing you know it was it was really tough and uh a lot of sad faces around and so we'll get into that but um uh let's Let's move forward. One last thing on the Randall Bramlett band. I said that I just saw him at Vista Room. Interesting to see them in front of a standing crowd instead of a sitting crowd, which is kind of an, uh, an anomaly here. Well, typically Atlanta, they, they usually... play the venue in Decatur in Atlanta uh, called Eddie's Attic, which is a listening room. In theory. Not the <laughs> listening room it used to be, but more of a listening room than most. And people are sitting most of the time, except I'm in the back dancing. <laughs> my friend Aaron and I last time we we boogied right at the entrance uh, for the whole show. And and, <laughs> and uh, but most of the people are sitting. Right, and Colonel Bruce used to hold court there uh, at least once a week, if not more. And he would always sit outside oh. in the patio. There's a uh, bar patio kind of area uh, where the you actually at where the they Vista. yeah no 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 this is at, I'm talking about at the, at um, Eddie's attic. And he used to sit back oh, there okay. and he would um he would have a sweet tea or unsweet tea rather uh and watch the band on stage through the tv and so you see he right. loved music but he never really liked getting too too close um it was interesting anyway i so, also think but uh, wait Seth, I, I always thought that when colonel the few times he did come into the crowd to try to watch stuff people would come up and talk to him so he wouldn't be able to to enjoy the music he just didn't have the time people yeah and speaking that's of which life. that's a great the greatest that. way to get right into this tune huh <laughs> well i noticed that when we had the the colonel bruce uh, the movie he was in uh rusty hello yeah, rusty what, what was it called whatever here comes rusty when we had we had that um here comes rusty right when we had the big thing here and then they did the you know we did the movie preview and then colonel led this band and they did all these different people O'Teal was in the audience i was right next to him and O'Teal's trying to watch a show. People keep coming up to him and talking to him during the song, during during the show. Yeah, and I, during I, the movie I, I said to Brian Turberliger was with me, and I was like, I might say hi to O'Teal between. I'll wait till between songs. I'll wait till between songs. And Brian was right. He said, You know what? Don't even do that, Rob. Just leave him alone. Too many people bother him. And I was like, You know what, Brian? 
you're right, I'm going to leave him alone. That's why I say get me O'Teal to you all the time. Okay, okay, I'm working on it. Um, so... His brother, his brother's doing very well, by oh, the way. Give, his brother Kofi a... had a had a aorta... A heart attack. Care. He had a severe heart attack. Yeah. And he had two surgeries, I sure, think. Sure, but I'm Hmm? He, he had a surgery or two surgeries. It was it was it was uh, it, yeah. It was pretty scary. I'm glad he's gonna be okay, scared. from what I hear. We actually um, that Aaron that I mentioned, she's pretty close with O'Teal's wife. We're gonna get like a a Windows document or something, and we're all gonna try to help out different things for Kofi during his recovery. And I think. I don't think he has insurance, Seth. I think a benefit concert is in order. Mm, okay. Well, we'll look at that. And um, I will say with Kofi, and uh, and uh, he used to be with the Derek Trucks Band. He played a bunch with um, Derek Trucks Band. And, you know, you got Yanrico Scott, so now you've got two surviving heart attack musicians. I'm saying, you know, Lonely Heart Club's band, something. Maybe they do little Beatles, the two of those guys, when they when, once he's but all recovered. to be recovered. serious? Yeah. To be serious, I'm glad you brought up Yanrico because... He's an example of a person who had a heart attack and then reacted, adjusted his life and came out perhaps healthier than he was before. And yeah. when you, when God, when God or whoever you believe in or don't believe in, when, when your body, whatever, <laughs> sends you a strong signal like that, you've got to, you got to respond, you know? Yeah. And you, and then maybe young Rico can help Kofi get through this. But one last thing, cause I want to get back to the point I was making and then we'll get on to the, to the song and the interview. So when Randall's playing Vista Room in front of a crowd that's standing, the energy was much more, of course, because art musicians like feedback. They don't want pe- generally musicians don't want to be stared at. They want people to have a physical response. But also, this band now he he mentions it in the interview and, I, and saying how we're going to stretch more, and we're going to we're going to do more and more adventures playing. And a lot of times musicians say that but don't really do it. But oh my God, man, Randall Brandon band's always been great, but it's usually been more tight. You know, mm-hmm. if they expounded, it would be maybe once a show and not that adventurous now they're pushing the envelope dude and it makes for a much more compelling show for a nerd like me i loved it it's such a great time great show all right well here's the show that we got in front of us for you all so sweet i'd like to get to know you i'd like to be your friend but i just don't have the time Hear about the latest, whatever it is you're doing. Ride around the golf course with your drinking wine. You say maybe we could sit down and get down to business. What do I think about the state of the world? Spend some quality time one on one. Shoot the shit while I go out of my mind. I'd like to get to know you. Bet you got your ducks in line. I really like to be your friend, but I just don't have the time. I'd really like to hear about your rehab, how you crashed and burned, but you got yourself together now. Moved down to the beach and got a new lease, writing a book on spiritual something or other. You say living is easy and prosperity is sweet The more I listen, the more I think I need some therapy All I want to do is get through my five stages of grief From being around you I'd like to get to know you I bet you got your ducks in line I'd really like to be your friend But I just don't have the time
I hear about the Large Hadron Collider? Well, what if all the hadrons go wrong? Did I read a book called The God Particle? You know, maybe we could fit that in a song that we could write together. Some about broken hearts and stormy weather. You know, we could be the next Simon and Garfunkel. I'm running out of lime, so I got to holler, Uncle. Like to get to know you. I bet you got your ducks in line. I really like to be your friend, but I just don't have the time. Garfunkel and that Uncle. Is, I'm running out of rhymes. I think I said limes, <laughs> which is good too. Well, yes, yeah. It's our exclusive version. <laughs> it's the Mexican That's a lot version. Of words in that damn song. I'm running out of r- limes. I'm running out of rhymes. <laughs> that seems like the kind of song, like David Bromberg has one called um, I'll Take oh, You Back. Yeah, yeah. But he keeps adding to the end of it. It seems like one where as time goes by, you could add yeah, verses. I think it's going to happen. Yeah. Because we're sitting here. Where are we, Rob? Or are we not allowed to say? Well, we're not a specific, but oh. Randall's been kind enough to allow us into his. In my mountain getaway. His mountain getaway home studio. In you know, no one's ever in had, me, had us into their home. We've been. Brendan Bayless had us into his hotel room. That's Is there a reason come. for that, though, really? I'm starting to wonder. We'll uh, find out. Me too. Well, I can tell you some of the reasons. A lot of fa- <laughs> a lot of artists recognize Rob as the guy that takes his shirt off in front of them at a concert. Oh, that guy. Well, the danger here would be going through the traffic uh, and the Randall Bramlett archive and finding soundboards. <laughs> I'm going to search you on the way out. We, we, are have with- a, we have a screening mechanism like metal detector kind of thing. A we metal were, detector. Wait, I, I didn't realize you did any metal bands in your career. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We <laughs> got sit in with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but we are here with Randall Bramlett, a man who is a wonderful singer-songwriter, his own right. He's been uh, covered by Bonnie Raitt, Hot Tuna, all kinds of artists. He's also toured with um, Greg Allman, Steve Winwood, Traffic, the amazing 1994 Traffic Tour. Mm-hmm. Randall that was, was a good one. Randall was a key part of it. Kind of funny watching you... Jam with, yeah, traffic, with long with traffic hair jam. jumping up and down when he's not playing the the sax he's playing the tambourine he's jumping up and down like a little boy it's great but we don't want to talk about that just yet we want to talk about the man he's also the man who has put out it's about to come out the juke joint at the end at the edge of the world or the end of the world edge at the edge of the world now this yeah is, we had a converse on that too but edge was better well. That that leads me to believe that you're one of these flat um, Earth people believers. Is oh, that yeah. right? Are you flat yeah, Earth? Yeah, yeah. So anybody you... can see that. I mean, my God, <laughs> rest of us a hoax. If it makes me play basketball like Kyrie Irving, I'll, I'll be a flat Earth person. But my question to you is: Yes, Juke Joint Part seems to reference the kind of places you've been playing lately, and at the edge of the world seems to be the newfound. Uh, approach to music you're playing with the band you're on the road with these days is that is there any accuracy to that you got it you got it i think it the feeling of these songs a lot is coming out of the four piece i'm wanting to keep this record a four piece record as much as possible so it's almost half and half Um, i mean there's a couple of songs with both guitar players but most of it is four piece and I wanted to keep that combo feel you know because um i'm getting a little tired of the big the big guitar 
things. And um, I just wanted to see if we could do kind of almost like an organ trio feel with a guitar player and let it reflect all the growing and the playing, improvising we've been doing over the last few years with Nick and Steele. And Nick Johnson, Michael Steele. Michael Steele and Seth Hendershot. Who also <clears throat> is a co-owner of a venue called Hendershots in, is. in Athens, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Come on down. One that I w- would like to mention <clears throat> is very, very hospitable to traveling musicians and musicians of all kind, but it is a musician's venue, wouldn't yep. you say? Yeah, and they get some great, you know, they, they hook up with the, some of the people at music school, so they get some serious jazz players coming through that you w- normally would not get to come mm-hmm. to Athens. And what was that band, <clears throat> the Fuzzy Sprouts? That was his band, yeah, right? His Back band, in, yeah. I promoted them in like 98, but that, that was a funny band. They went to Europe. and never came back (laughs) so when you go into the studio and you're in part um inspired by the improvisational element of the music yet you're gonna make you you made versions of the songs that become a stamp i guess from which you'll improvise then but to what extent are you bringing the improv into the studio well the structure's there we work that out in the studio but all the soloing and the playing off each other and the length of the end and all that stuff they're all different on each take. We're just going for it, you know. Then we'll pick the best take. and But the structure, we work on a good bit in the studio, and then we just let it go and play, you know, like whatever sections we're going to play, uh, solo sections. But what I like about it is the way that we respond to each other in these sections. We didn't play the songs enough to really learn them all that well. Like if you pay attention, I'm screwing up the end of uh, I Like to Get to Know You. I just don't have the time. That's the name of it. But, um, you know, there's a lot of screw-ups, and I just kind of like the way that feels. I don't want The more you learn it, we always had to back up one take because once we learned it, we started, you know, ah, pound it out, and everybody knows it, and it's, it loses some of its edginess and craziness. So we kept we moved back a take almost always. And said, "Let's go with that one because that's before we really learned it too well." Is that normal for, um, historically speaking, for your studio work, or is that your specifically for this project, this this album? Well, this album, we were more conscious of it. Uh, Jerry was <clears throat> Jerry Hans, <clears throat> who usually plays drums on all our stuff. Actually, was just the producer on this one, and Seth played all the drums. So Jerry got to sit in there and really guide us through some of these things like he would say y'all have passed it now you know you're playing it too hard because you know it and um you're rocking it out too much so let's go back to the laid-back feeling you had so i think it's a little different this time i mean you you never want to go past the take to where it's sterile but we were really going for a feel on this one that was a cool feel that was underplayed and a little ragged and the band already plays very much in the moment like you have a song called john the baptist that can be uh completely different in consecutive nights yeah but do you think that any of this material in this approach will inspire you to once in a while maybe one song a show go full band ensemble improv like off the map stuff off the map we are doing more and more getting off the map but you know you have to come back to the verses and you do the chorus after the verse things have to fit together right like that but yeah we're we're going more and more the more the more comfortable we get with things there's certain songs you play almost the same every night sure because they just have to be 
but like John the Baptist and some of the some of the stuff on this new record, it can go, and we'll see where it ends up. You know, I mean, isn't that more fun, more satisfying as a player, and and take some of the I don't know drudgery of being on the road when you're when you have when you have a band that's able to do that? Yeah, it's great to have a band that can do that, but it's also great to have a band that can play a song the way it should be played. Sure. Like, some songs just need to be played pretty much as they are with life and soul, but they need to. They don't need to go off anywhere. You know, they don't need to jam. They don't need to do long solos. Like Driving to Montgomery, for instance, the song like that is just, it is, it is what it is, and you, it doesn't need to go anywhere. And to have a band that can do both those things, both those, be restrained, but not play a song, um, but give a song life that mm-hmm. you played a lot, and um, and also be able to go out and like on certain songs, just go out there, get in, get out. We do, we go out on that one. Now, is that something that's kind of a nice thing to work with younger musicians? Like take like a Nick Johnson, who's I, I wouldn't call him young anymore. He's kind of getting up yeah, there he's now. But you know, you take these young cats like that, you can really mold them and into into that formula. You know, where he's a fantastic for anyone who hasn't listened to him, he's a fantastic guitar player, extremely tasteful, but he can hold he can he can drop it, he can say it, he can say it with less you know, less lines than a lot of guitar players can and get his message and the point across like, you know, pretty quickly. Yeah, and I don't have to mold him. He's really he's inspiring me and so is Seth and Michael Steele too. They they're really um driving a lot of what i'm doing they're they're just um they don't need to be and nick doesn't need to be told anything really can can we talk about some of the songs on the album like garbage man that the inspiration behind that comes from your past right yeah i was just thinking about growing up down in south georgia and also wove into the the class and race uh segregation and you know, that song is about, on the surface, just carefree childhood with his girlfriend running through the neighborhoods and talking to the garbage man. But, you know, the garbage man is in another world, and he's saying, you know, you know I pick up all your stuff and take it to the dump, and I do the same thing over and over. And, you know, it's it's just, I think about that stuff a lot, the, the segregation I grew up with. Uh, and how I didn't know anybody on the other side of the tracks. You know, none of us did, really, except people that worked in our homes. And um, but there's still, you know, segregation is still and strong, you know. And and he's talking seriously. The town he grew up in, in Jessup, Georgia, is a railroad town, right? Yeah, paper mill and railroad. We, there's some famous people from Jessup, though. Who's that? Well, there's the gospel singer. Uh, what's you're looking it up? No, I have it here. Yeah, he's he's taking some notes here. Let's see. Tasha Cobbs. It was the first name I, I recognized <clears throat> when I looked up people. Really? And there's a member of the New England Patriots. Trey That's, Jackson. What about uh, um, Haas, Lynn the, Haas? Uh, Lynn Haas played for the Redskins. For That's right, Redskins. Six Pro Bowls in a row, won a Super Bowl with the Redskins. And the, But the most famous one is um, David Larson, swimmer. See, I don't even know this. He won, he won a gold medal, won, broke two records. In this, in a gold medal in the Olympics. Yeah. When you, actually, when you first said that to me in the car right here, that he broke two records, I thought that. Like, you knew yeah. him and he broke two records. <laughs> and like, it was, so this story is not as funny as I thought it was when you first told me, Rob. Thanks. And then Erwin Serency is the last one. When was the... Oh, the, um, I think that was 84. Man, I'll tell you, I'm out of it. But 
Uh, Erwin Cerency is the founder of the American Journal of Legal History. So all you lawyers out there, he's from Jessup, Georgia. So that, does that mean all little towns will have that amount of people? Something. But do you ever go back to Jessup? Yeah. How far are we from it? Four hours, four and a half hours. Oh, okay. Have you ever played a gig there? Yes. What kind of room? <laughs> One time it was a juke furniture. Joint, uh, yeah, it was a juke. <laughs> it was a furniture factory, but that was many years ago. But see, I grew up playing there. We played tobacco barns. We played the rec center, you know, everywhere we could. But um, the last gig I played there was an outdoor downtown festival, sort of, on a flatbed bed truck. <laughs> it was a solo gig, too. Interesting, uh, interesting. Uh, playing at a furniture store, I mean, would you say that was a refurbished <laughs> set list? <laughs> <laughs> You guys are too clever. It's all him. I'd like to get to know you. I know, exactly. <laughs> well placed. Oh, God. Um, plan B, can you talk about that? That's just the four piece also on the record. And that's the... Uh, oh, yeah. That was released when, Rob? It will be coming out in June. There you go. Right? They moved the date to July 7th. To July 7th. Okay. But we're going to do release parties and stuff in June. We're sticking with it. So plan B um, is plan more... Plan B is... Is July. Right. That is, that's interesting. That is plan B for the release is July 7th. But the song, could you talk about it? Because uh, I ain't got no plan B is, is the uh, refrain, right? Yeah, that's a character song where I'm playing the role of a guy driving a van with a, you know, the mini tires that you just can't afford to get a new tire. And he's got the tattoo, or he's got the faded number of his girlfriend on his hand He's looking for, you know, he's looking for something. <laughs> but, and he's on the edge, and he, uh, he, he is delusional. That's why they love him, you know, because he always lives on the edge. He's got no plan B. And his picture's in the post office. It looks a lot like him. and It just goes, that's, that's a theme I've used over and over in songs, you know, somebody crazy living on the edge who, doesn't, who apparently doesn't give a damn. Maybe that's why I relate to his music so well. So. Yeah, maybe yeah. So when you when you're writing a song like that, um, out of curiosity, uh, does it take over you in your dream world too? Are you waking up in the morning and like you you dreamt you were the trash man that night or anything like that? I mean, how much of the writing comes into your like psyche? I mean, I start thinking about it when I start working on a song, and I'm thinking about it all the time. Like, how do these words fit together? But I don't usually dream about it. Although I dreamed up this song called Molly Contra. I did dream that song. It was almost, the chorus was actually dreamed. Um, and the 40 Buzzards, I saw that out here at, um, when I was walking on this trail by a cell tower. There's a bunch of buzzards roosting up there. That's a good image to start a song. It's like, uh-oh, death, going to make that phone call. And then Molly Cotter had some kind of feel about, I had no idea what that meant except an energy, you know, maybe the energy of death or life. It's got to be an Indian god somewhere called that. So at first I tried to censor myself. Like, you shouldn't write a song like that because you don't know what it means. Like, what do those words mean? But then I said, I don't care. Too old to care. That's a good song there. That is too old to care. <clears throat> but I love the image of forty buzzers on a cell tower. Does anybody get that? Well, I doubt it. When I saw, when I heard it, I was thinking of how 
the cell towers are quietly killing us more than about me needing mm. to make a phone call. And the buzzards are, are, are kind of waiting for our demise as what is in part causing it is sitting just beneath them. So. Ah, many layered meanings. It's allegorical, you know, <laughs> lyricism is allegorical. <laughs> but the song says that uh, the phone starts buzzing in the console. He's driving by. So there's somebody making a call to him. The doctor with the bad news. Yeah, hmm. maybe so. Oh, well, thank God it's allegorical because I missed it, right? Yeah. Who knows what that song means? That songs that, you know, like Jeff Tweedy says, you know, once they're out there, they're, they're everybody's. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, trippy little thing. Another four-piece one. <clears throat> yeah. Is yeah. that inspired by any, anybody in particular or is that an amalgam? I was of- thinking of my wife on that one because nice. we met down in New Orleans. I lived down there for a long time with her and she was like this little hippie, beautiful thing. She loved riding her bike and sitting on in, in the live oaks and going to Spanish Fort. At first, that song was Since I'm Gone for a long time, which meant he was a ghost and talking back to the, trying to reach the living. But it didn't make as much sense, so I went to Since You're Gone. I went back to that, actually. I went back and forth. Because How- the bridge says... Um, there's no writing on the wall. There's been no writing on the wall. There's can't get to you at all. If you want to send me a sign, so it has to come from she's gone. I won't miss it this time. So the bridge said, no, it needs to be since you're gone. I wandered through the cobblestone streets all night talking to the cops and the vendors that's how I spend my time since you're gone. There's been no writing on the wall. I can't get through to you at all. If you wanna send me a sign, I swear I won't miss it this time. Maybe in some other life. Everything will work out right You tell that to the broken ones Waiting at the stops where the streetcars run That's how I spend my time Since you're gone songwriting process is a fascinating thing it is and i go back and forth with stuff for a long time before it feels like okay this is as good as like this fits and it's never perfect you know it's always like god i wish i could come up with something better there but i just can't but now so later later years down the road if you do come up with something better how willing are you to change something you already made change the I lyric would probably change it it's funny though once it gets done you start playing it don't it care is. anymore. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's good enough. It is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. Do you have a place you go to for inspiration when you are really feeling the need to compose? 
or at least get the initial uh, kernels of songs? Um, I mean, I sit upstairs in, in a chair and I read and um, read a couple of meditations and sit quietly. And then I have a book on journal. So I write stuff in the book. And sometimes I can get some ideas going that way. That's why I have all these tons of pages of stuff, you know, down here. I bring them down. Then when it comes time to try to get in the writing mode again, which I just started doing yesterday, day before, somebody sent me some lyrics, Jason Slatton, and I said, yeah, let me try this. So then I just come down and fool around with it, with a guitar and maybe some loops or something. So with this CD about to come out, you're already working on the material for the next one? Yeah, because I hadn't written a song in a long time, actually. Because, you know, it's all been in the production mode, recording and production and business mode for the last few months so i need to write something how many studio you're over 10 studio releases now right i think it's two old ones from the 70s right on capricorn yeah no they were on polydor oh okay <clears throat> but and they then got there's one on capricorn in the 90s 98 or something then the rest of them were new west and then one independent in the meantime and God bless New West Records. They put out some great stuff. Oh, yeah. I love that label. And I noticed no. that you're, uh, I'm looking down here in Devil Music, you've got uh, on vinyl. Is the new album going to be on vinyl as well? Yeah, they're putting all their stuff on vinyl, That's too. That's great. I love it. Another benefit of New West, too, because when we had Kevin Kenny on, he um, told us that yeah, now yeah. that vinyl's so popular that it can be hard for artists, because you're, you're in line behind the Eagles' greatest hits and, and the Grateful Dead Europe 72 for pressing, so it can be hard to get in there. Oh, I imagine really? New West helps cut you to the front of the line. <clears throat> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I, hadn't, I didn't know about that. Um, the, the, a couple more things on the new album. Where, where exactly was it recorded? The tracks were done at Jim Hawkins' place. That's 1093 Boulevard Studios here okay. in town. Okay. <clears throat> it's a relatively new... I mean, he's had the place for a long time, but they... T- totally redid it and fixed it up and it's beautiful and sounds great so we did all the tracking yep all the tracking there and then i went to jerry's and the over we didn't have many overdubs really a few things nick did i did the vocals back here at my house and um i mean davis came over for a day did some horns over there so, but it wasn't a lot of overdubs and Davis has been with you since the, the uh, gosh, I think he was in sea level with you, was he not? Oh, yeah. Before that, he was just in my band, and we played in other bands together. 68, we started playing together. And um, it, it's funny. What's his last name again? Davis? Causey. Because um, I was just talking with Nick last night, and Nick Johnson, and he was pointing out how, and that could be an uncomfortable situation when Davis comes back and sits in with him, but Davis is such a generous and giving player that Nick says it's, it's wonderful, and actually Nick comes out of it feeling like a, a better player and more aware of your music, even though Nick's been playing with you for so long. Yeah. But Nick is also very respectful of you know, older musicians that can play, and you know, he's not trying to be a gunslinger or anything. Mm-mm. So they, they work well together. And he listens very well in conversation, so I imagine he listens well on stage. Or so yes, he seems he does. to. He does I'll, both of them do. I would definitely give uh, Colonel some credit on that. When, he, when Nick was, what, 20, 21, and moved to Atlanta, and it was under Colonel, Colonel definitely, uh, I well, think that's one of the lessons that <clears throat> Nick told me he learned from, from Colonel. That I called and, Bruce looking for a guitar player. Oh, yeah. And Bruce recommended Nick. Right on, Bruce. Yep. Right on. 
Let's before we go back in time, um, we we got to talk about Devil Music, even though it's been out a couple of years now, because it's such a great story. You you get invited to this place called Nashville Soundstage, and initially it was to do a dem a demo for the studio or for a, a teaching video. <clears throat> it is for a DVD of uh, it's kind of like a master class in engineering and producing, um, and they got all these great like Ed Cherney and. Um, uh, Massenburg uh, God I can't even think of all the people but all these great engineers several I haven't thought about in a while we'd have to look it up but several great engineer and producer folks from all over and they said um, that we could be the through Michael Rhodes who's a bass player up there we got to be the kind of one of the bands that they filmed and um tracked so we tracked six maybe six seven songs were those originals that you had had written yeah so you went there to do that for another project you weren't even thinking about doing the record no we said hey let's let's do it and um and we can use it they said you can take them for you know use them any way you want to and i thought also i'd get a dvd out of it uh, but i didn't we i jumped at that because it was like man we get these guys can just take it wherever they want to, and we'll we'll um, get to see what they do with it in a great studio. So then they kind of put it to you, hey, should we do more? Should we turn this into an album and kind of? No, they just said here. Th- these are the tracks we that you know we did six, I think. So they just we just got to take them, the multi tracks home, and they get to use us in the studio playing. And and they were showing like examples of how to mic, how they like to mic drums, how they like to mic guitars, how they do vocals. Because I was, and we use loops, so they got to, they were interested in that. Like, how do you use loops with recording? This is how you do it. And and we used uh, my vocal through a little tiny amp, in addition to the regular vocal, things like that, techniques that they got to show in their DVD, I guess, although I haven't seen it. Well, for, <laughs> for seventy nine ninety five, you can go to masterclass.org.com. Is, is it available? It is available ah. uh, only between the hours of 10.45 p.m. and 11.42 I bet I get a 10% PM. discount. If they're listening to this, they should send a copy to Nancy Lewis Pagel, and she'll make sure it gets to uh, Nancy Lewis Pagel, Brilliant Productions. But um, it, So is one of the things they were demonstrating is that big drum sound, and how do they get that? <clears throat> yeah, well, that's... Chuck Ainley and um, I forget who was working with us. Ed Cherney, I think. Chuck Ainley's the one who yeah. works with Knopfler. Yeah, and he was kind of overseeing this whole thing because it was his. He's used to working in the studio, so they brought all these other people in, but he was kind of in charge of our session. And but we had some other folks too. Um, um, but they do this with a bunch of mics and bu- uh, great room mics and close mics, and they mix it all together. I don't know, but mm-hmm. they they. They have their techniques. Now, Rob is not just a fan. He's, he's a super fan. And when this album came out, Rob has a funny story he told me earlier, which I'd love for him to share, about promoting oh. this album. Well, right. see, I'm a big grassroots promoter, but I don't really do it that much anymore. But for you and Nancy at Brilliant, you know, mm-hmm. I'll do it. So this album comes out, <clears throat> and it's just before Christmas in Georgia. And I'm going through these little Georgia towns trying to hang a poster with devil music written all over it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Love it. So well, we got a few hung up, but not. It wasn't as easy as usual. Come to the, uh, you know, the the whatever neighborhood association's Christmas party, and then right under it, devil music. Yeah. <laughs> One person just said, "Get out of my store." <laughs> really? One person. Yeah. Uh, uh, with that devil music. Just because of devil music, they don't realize the irony that you're kind of poking fun at. It's an Iron Maiden kind of thing, right? Yeah. You're not really worshiping the devil. But uh, but let's talk about the what? <laughs> let's talk no. about that title track though, because what a great story behind that it involves Hubert Sumlin and Howlin' Wolf, right? Yeah, that's another one I got from reading Howlin' Wolf's biography. But it turns out that particular story in the book came from Hubert. I, um, he told a lot of those stories in that book. But Howlin' Wolf had a terrible childhood. His mother left, and his dad eventually kind of, or he he got shipped off to his great-uncle, abusive great-uncle's house. And um, he had to walk there in the cold. I mean, it was bad. But anyway, he got a lot of abuse there. But um, his mother was extremely religious, sanctified, and I don't know if she was like that when she left, but she was like that later on. And they hadn't seen each other in all those years. But he was. the story is they found out somehow uh, that she was... In living in this little town in Mississippi somewhere. They asked around and they found her and the story is he went to meet her again and they hugged and and then he was trying to give her some money and she's like, she don't want none of that devil money and devil music and stuff, you know. So I think she had mental issues, is what I understand. But but I talked to Hubert about it at a festival we were playing. He was playing and he was backstage and of course I wanted to talk to him. I'm, that's why I'm like one of these guys, you know, like, get away from me. You're talking too much. But anyway, I, I just asked him uh, if it was true. You know, he said, yeah, it was true. She slammed the door in my face. Wouldn't come to his funeral. Oh, wow. So um, it seemed like a perfect um, setup for um, the conflict between, the, you know, religion and blues and profane and spiritual and mother and son and they said that even in the in the army when wolf when he got he went to the army and he had to be put in hospital there because he couldn't take that all that screaming and stuff at him you know the drill sergeants he just kind of cried all the time went into the hospital with depression i think that's ptsd and I bet you that's what happened to him. Also known as growing up in a Jewish household, just so you guys know. Oh, okay. What else did Hubert tell you about, uh, about him? I asked him if he cried all the way to Memphis. He says, yeah, we couldn't settle him down. That's such a dichotomy. In his car. He, you know, With the, his band. Wow. That's he's how much such a rough-hewn, rugged oh, guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know about when Lowell George met him, and he basically told him to... You know, gave him the brush. Really? And I've heard know. other musicians the same thing, where they got a chance to meet Helen Wolf and it was not a rewarding experience. Hmm. Oh, well. Bonnie Wright said it was. Oh, well, really? she's yeah. Bonnie Wright. Yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. It's well, re- rewarding cute. for him to meet her, I'm yeah. sure. What did she say? <laughs> just that he was real sweet and full of, just emitted this sexual energy. and But, in, you know, they met, I guess, in Boston. I don't know where she met him. But anyway, it is odd that a big old six foot five blues man like that would cry. But that shows you the power of, of you know, Youth boy needing his mom to you know need and them, getting shipped off to someone re- cruel. Yeah, that's right, and wanting desperately to reconnect somehow. Mm-hmm. 
So it seemed a perfect song. And it was already written, basically. I just had to kind of, you know, put it in order. Do you find that the songs that resonate, that you've written yourself, that resonate the most with you at this point in time, upon reflection, are the ones that came to you the most easily? I don't know about that. I I don't know. That one probably is a good example of one that was fairly easy. But, you know, I've never had them trying to think back, but... Roll, roll, roll. Yeah, but I work on these things for a long time. Mm-hmm. They don't come easy. The Howlin' Wolf thing, though, um, I put the chorus in there to give him a voice, or whoever it was that it happened to, that says, I can't stop. I just can't stop playing that devil music. And then the other parts of it are about, it's older than your Bible. I put all that in as like, Hell yeah, I'm going to play the blues. <laughs> he didn't say that, though. He was crushed. But, you know, I, just, I was trying to make blues and religious music equally sacred and strong, you know. As they are, I mean. Look, <laughs> You would think, yeah. Um, I know why they hate the devil's music, though, because the most people playing in juke joints are going to be gambling and mm. fooling with women and drinking. It makes sense. Yeah, I mean, there is behavior associated with this music yeah. we love that's deplorable, but there's also some amazing and wonderful things that come out of it, you know? Yeah. The Rex Foundation, for one. But um, how did you, back in the 70s, get in? We're, we're going to go back. Can you do a rewind sound, Seth? <laughs> okay. We're back in the 70s now, and you get in with the Muscle Shoals All-Stars. Is that really where... Doors started open for you. How did how did that happen? Take us no, through. No, uh, Macon. You're thinking about Capricorn. Okay. Um, because I started doing some sessions down there. I joined Cowboy at one point because I I forget how I knew those guys. I, I had met them or something. I knew and I. That's Tommy Talton. Tommy Talton, Scott Boyer. <clears throat> Somehow I just quit a band up here and hitchhiked down there. Like at the gig, I just went out and listened to it, and it was like ah. Eh. I would do impulsive things like that sometime. It was not a very good thing to do, but I just said I've had enough, and I hitchhiked down to Macon, and they were living on the Idlewild South Lake, and it seemed like a good place to be. So I played with them for a while, but then I got some horn sessions with Elvin Bishop or Bonnie Brown or whoever was Marshall, I mean Marshall Tucker, or whoever needed horns, I was playing that. And then... Um, you know, people found out I could ride, so I was. That's where I pitched that song to Delbert and um, playing old making love, and you know, I just got in with the Capricorn thing. I moved down to Macon, and eventually, I was still doing my own band. But eventually, Chuck started Sea Level, and he, after they did a record by themselves, four piece, and then on the next record, he called me and. Asked if I would help write and sing. They needed material and needed another vocalist, and I got Davis to come too. So that's where that started. And oh, before that, we were Greg's. That's how I knew Chuck. We were Greg's uh, band. You and Chuck, and who else? <clears throat> cowboy. Dan, Dan Toller? No, is that before? Mm-hmm. Just Cowboy. It was Cowboy and Chuck, pretty much. Yeah, it was Greg's band and a horn section and an orchestra. Now, this time you were, were you playing the saxophone, the keyboard, the guitar, like everything, or did that Not stuff guitar. come on later? 
It says guitar came in, on. In my band, I play some acoustic, but not with, not with Greg. Or mm-hmm. I was playing in the horn section with his section of the show, and with Cowboy, I was playing, and, and with Sea Level, I was playing organ and piano. But Chuck was playing most of the piano. And was uh, was Greg very exacting with how he wanted you to approach stuff? No, not at all. But they had a musical director, you know, and so we knew all the stuff. But he wasn't like a. No. And for those listening, we're talking easy. about Chuck Lavelle and <clears throat> Greg Allman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when he, he came, was at the height of his playing, you know. Queen of Hearts? Playing. Yeah, Queen of Hearts. Mm. Great song. He never mm-hmm. touches it anymore. Dreams. <clears throat> Some good stuff on that record. Good rooms then? Like, c- compare the rooms you were playing with Greg. Oh, on- Carnegie Hall. Oh, Places really? like that. Yeah, that's where we were playing. Fantastic. Big rooms. It was a big show. It and- was the first big show I'd ever been on. National, you know, places like, you know, playing Carnegie Hall was a, you know, that was scary. But I had never played. I'd played with the Goose Creek Symphony before that. That was a kind of a national act. But we didn't play any big places like that. So this is the first time I got out on a real rock and roll circuit, big venues. Now, sea level came out of that. Well, sea level came out of the jazzier side of the Almond Brothers. Yeah, that they were just doing a side project just for fun, I think. Jamo was in that, right? Jamo, Lamar Williams played bass. Jimmy Knowles played guitar, <clears throat> but Jimmy was not in the Almond Brothers, but the others were. So they were just having fun doing their jazzier thing, and then they expanded to me and Davis. And I know Lamar is gone, but are you still tempted to resurrect that band ever? No. Chuck doesn't want to. I don't want to. I mean, we do when we play with Chuck, like we're playing this weekend. We'll do probably do a couple of things like Living in a Dream or King Grand. Those are my, me and Davis's songs. But we don't do any other C-level stuff. Just, you've done it, you want to move on. Like, even yeah. if Juan E. came to you and said, we want a C-level reunion this year, you, you guys wouldn't Nah, move. we're just not interested we did it, and it kind of petered out. We ran out of steam, so we don't need to go back. It was good for a couple of records. Did you know it was temporary the whole time when you were in it? No, just, I, I didn't know what it was going to be. I just needed I needed to work, and I liked Chuck, and um, so we just gave it a shot. We thought we could be something different, you know, have a different— and we did, I think, on the Cats on the Coast record. There's some different-sounding stuff. It was— Jazzier Southern Rock, I guess. And when did that end? Eighty. Oh, uh, maybe eighty, eighty-one. So nine. between then and when would you start up with around eighty-eight, right? Yep. So what what do we do in the eighties in there? Uh well, I played with Levon Helm. And That's that was right. Like eighty-one, but that was only a couple of little short tours. But what a what a guy to work with. Oh though. yeah, it was. I love him. He just had joy of playing. And he just soon played a juke joint with a hundred people. Hmm. That's what he liked doing. Well, because the band had <laughs> resurrected then, but it was without Robbie, right? Yeah, but they weren't playing right then. I mean, Levon was doing his thing with the Muscle Shoals All Stars, so it was Russell Smith and Duncan Cameron, some of those guys that they were in. Uh, um, oh my God, what's the name of that group? That was Adam. That was Russell. Russell and Duncan's group. Anyway, um, 
they put that all together and we played a couple of good tours had a lot of fun played the alaska state fair and we all know the alaska state fair <laughs> it's a cool gig it's a cool gig yeah. yeah was that it was in the summer it was cold i'm telling you but 20 hours of light right yeah <laughs> we just have a day set yes. <laughs> we'll be playing in the afternoon <laughs> lighting directors hate alaska in the summer <laughs> so levon i mean did he talk about the band much? amazing I mean, rhythm aces amazing there you that's go. what i was trying amazing to rhythm okay he, he's a great drummer too. I mean, we all everybody oh, yeah. can hear what a great singer he is. But talk about playing with him as a drummer. Well, he's just got the feel, you know. That's what it comes down. To. He doesn't play a lot of licks, but he's got this cool feel that's just laid back and funky. It's the Arkansas, you know, Delta music, and he's got a bunch of good stories too. But he was mad with Doctor John. I'm not even going to tell you this. Oh. No, no, no. Oh. Come on. You know, now you have to. Now you have to. Nobody listens to this. It's yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just us. Historically speaking, at, the, at this mark of time, we have 12 <laughs> listeners. No. no, I think we were riding from Memphis down down the Delta, through the Delta. It was and me, and I think it was James Booker, the keyboard player, and and Levon, and he was in a bad mood. He could get in a bad mood about somebody who was screwing around with his wife, you know, or ex-wife, actually, in New Orleans. So he was, we were driving down there. He was getting darker and darker. And they'd already stopped at Jerry Lee Lewis's doctor's and got a bunch of pills and stuff. So it was pretty funny going down. But he, we were trying to pull him out of that darkness. <laughs> but it was, he wasn't coming out. He could get like that. But um, we stopped at this barbecue place in his hometown, Helena, Arkansas. No, Marvel, Arkansas. It's a little grocery store. They just run down grocery store, and we stopped and ate barbecue. And it was so good. They said, "Why don't y'all send us some in New Orleans?" So they flew us some in, and uh, the old man's son brought it to us in the hotel. And he's like, "Bam, bam, bam!" And Levon's come in, and uh, this. The boy came in, he had his big ham, you know, barbecue they'd cooked for us. And he said, Levon, daddy's done sliced and mopped it for y'all. <laughs> so that became like a saying for the whole tour. It's done sliced and mopped it. <laughs> Levon had some funny stuff. Didn't he have one story about uh, someone coming into the hotel room with him and Richard Manuel and discussing the lyrics of one of their own songs and realizing they didn't? I think it was Shape Your End, realizing they didn't even know the lyrics. They had been singing it differently all those years. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that at all. They were my favorite band for so long. Well, they caused Eric Clapton to reevaluate his whole uh, really? approach to music. So very, very influential. Yeah, yeah, really. But where do we meet Steve Winwood? How does that happen? <clears throat> uh, Mike Lawler was his music director and mike had heard me with sea level up in nashville we were recording some and i think they were looking for a, somebody could play piano play horn sing you know whatever they were they were looking for somebody like that and he called davis actually looking for me and davis said yeah he can do all that so they called me and um i was in social work school i had come back that's a long story got sober went back to school Gave up music because nothing was happening anyway. I didn't, you know, I just said, well, if it's gone, it's gone. 
I'm not going to try to make it happen. Then right in the middle of my grad school, I get a call from Mike Lawler wanting to know if I want to play with Steve Winwood, and and, and I traffic was the reason I was, you know, I love traffic, so I said, hell yeah. And they let me out of school and came back and finished later, but that was frightening because they wanted me to play tenor. I didn't even own a tenor. I never played tenor sax. So I had to go into these rehearsals and kind of act like I knew what I was doing, but I hadn't been playing for eight years or six years or something. Wow. And never played tenor. So I had to just woodshed. I was staying with a friend of mine up Nashville, just woodshedding every day and paranoid. They're going to kick me out. At what point did they real did they ever realize that uh, that you didn't play it? <laughs> when I had to go buy one, uh, I had this C melody, which is kind of in between an E flat and a alto and a B flat tenor. It's an old C horn that nobody uses, and I've, eventually I had to get a real horn. But they kept asking me back on his tours. He did, and you know, I guess. I don't know. I guess I was like the sober Chris Wood or something, you know. The first tour was back in the High Life tour? Or is it before that? No, it was Roll With It after mm. the High Life tour. It was the next tour after that. Are you on? Is that you on the album? Oh, that's uh, Andrew Love, Memphis Horns. You know what's interesting about that to me, though, is that you're just a few, joining in just a few years after he did Ark of the Diver. And I believe that album for him, he was in a similar spot that you were when you were in school. Like, he was about ready to give up. And so he made this album hmm. that The Ark of a Diver is kind of a relationship, right? And he did everything himself. And he put it out. Did you ever talk about that? And then said, look, I'm going to put this out, put my heart and soul into it. If it doesn't hit, I'm going to step out and retire from show business. Is that not true? I never heard that. <clears throat> I know he wrote that with Will Jennings, uh, those songs, the most of them. <clears throat> but... I didn't hear that, but that was, I know that was his comeback album. Does he seem to, when I first would see him, I'd want to hear him play piano. And it took me a few times going to see him before I realized, oh, he's a fantastic guitarist too. Oh yeah. Does he seem to get more satisfaction out of the guitar playing than the piano? It seems like as the years go by, he's playing less on his piano and more Mm. and more guitar. Hmm. Well, when I was playing with him, he only played, he played piano on a few songs. Mostly it was, uh, uh, low spark that he would go off on piano. He's a great piano player. He's just got great timing on it and choices of what he plays and just a great sensibility about what to play. He never really gets like show off playing, but he what he plays makes sense and it's beautiful. But um, I don't know. I think he loves them all, kind of like mm-hmm. we all do. We got we get a kick out of playing different instruments. So when you're five years in with Winwood, is it any more daunting to prepare for a traffic tour than it is to prepare for a normal Steve Winwood tour? Traffic was easier to me because it's more of a jam thing. And it's, Jim Capaldi was there, and he could give a damn about everything being just right. He was just the spirit of rock and roll, you know. Like, let's just, we got to give it this spirit, you know. Don't, don't make it too nice, and we don't want to learn it too good and all that. Just light it up and leave it alone. <clears throat> yeah, just, he really is the spirit of you know, just total ADD rock and roller. Well, yeah. I can could, I could tell by listening to multiple versions. I actually have a gift for you, a cassette bootleg from that tour. Hmm. Woo! <laughs> cassette bootleg. Yeah. yeah. Do you, do you have that on vinyl by chance? Did you bring a cassette back. player with you? 
<laughs> no, but I can, I've heard multiple shows. I saw multiple shows, and Low Spark alone, you can tell that you guys were you had freedom to do that because I mean, Low Spark, they're they're different versions. I mean, you take different approaches on the solo, and the band responds. That percussionist, well, Fredo Reyes is just phenomenal with the subtlety and the responsiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You had complete freedom, like on a song like Mozambique. <coughs> which was an original that they wrote for that tour. Mm-hmm. Um, were you on the recording of that on the studio album? No, they did all that. Really? Somewhere in Ireland, I think. But were you... Just Jim and Steve. Would they say, we'd like you to take this approach, or were they just like, do your thing, man? No, they just give you a solo, and you go where you want to, with as long as you want to go. Mm-hmm. And you guys mixed up stuff a little bit, like 40,000 Headmen would come out here or there. That's one of my favorite songs. Uh, me too. I remember at RFK... Oh, I had to play, learn to play flute on that tour. <laughs> I never even picked up. What a else flute. did you learn on? T- <laughs> <laughs> you read a book responsible on this. <laughs> for me playing tenor and f- a little flute. I don't play much flute, but he's responsible for that. And on the flip side, are you responsible by any chance uh, with Widespread Panic, which we'll get into here in a minute? Uh, but with Panic and Steve Winwood playing with them at that lock in a couple of years ago, is that anything to do with you? Only through Buck Williams, who Manages is their you. manager and a good friend of mine, mm-hmm. and he met Steve in nashville they you know so they got to be friends and i don't think it was because of me but we had relationships that crossed over you know but before we get off the traffic tour you 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 played some with the grateful dead we opened for them what did you what are your memories of that um I mean, Jerry came back and talked to us some right at first, and you know, he's like, "I can't believe all these old, all these people are following us old farts around." You know, <laughs> he was real humble and cool. I liked him. He and he sat in with us. He'd sit in on some things like Low Spark. I think he said, uh, or um, Fantasy. No, and fantasy, give me some fantasy. fantasy. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's what it was. <clears throat> but it was, uh, you know, they were all cappuccino machines and air conditioned stages and stuff. They were. Big time compared to what we were doing with traffic. But poor Jerry wasn't at his best, though. In so he way. wasn't sober, but you were sober at the time, yeah? Yeah. I got sober in 83, so I was sober through all those. That's so clutch. That he must... was off and on, I think, Jerry was. Yeah. <clears throat> um, before we move off the 80s, do you feel that... Talking about cassette tapes. Out of the 80s. <laughs> yeah. The, the time you spent in, in social work school... Does that inform you and serve you well as a band leader, you think? Yeah, I was just talking um, the other day about the stuff I've learned about groups, subgroups that are unhealthy for a group, you uh-huh. know, when people start forming subgroups and talking about the rest of the guys. Oh, gosh. you got to avoid that kind of stuff and, right. and let the group keep a healthy group, like a group therapy thing would be, where everybody gets respect and gets to talk and... But that right there is the downfall of a lot of bands. You've talked to oh, bands yeah. that that been together. That's I mean we've we've heard this in interviews and, and whatnot. But yeah, once uh, once uh, that's that's what kills the band. Once once the drummer and guitar player are talking yeah. about the keyboard player and and you create these animosities, you know, and that's only created when you when you when you feed the subgroups. And the only way you right. can prevent that is by not feeding it. And <clears> it's easy to feed because we all like gossip, or not everyone, but a lot of people like gossip, like to, you know the secrets and whatever else there might be. But, but it's hard um, unless you have a therapist or somebody there with you. A lot of times, you know, resentments are deep in history, you know, and you can't necessarily resolve everything, you know, not just getting together. But it sure as hell 
helps unless it gets so bad that people can't talk anymore you know then it's done anyway so you start every band practice with okay and so can everyone talk about how they're feeling today we check in we check in rob how are you feeling (laughs) i understand you have cassettes with you are you being nostalgic today feelings about that cassette that you want to share (laughs) no but i tell you what we were talking about we need to sit down and just listen to some of our live stuff and see where we're at and talk talk among each other about you know, like maybe you're playing too much here, you know, or I, I need to ask you not to do this. You're stepping on my thing or whatever mm-hmm. so that, you know, it, it stays above in our consciousness rather than in mm-hmm. a resentful area. Either with traffic or on his solo. Did Winwood do that with his no, bands? No. Not at all. He's not much of a... No, he's not going to... Well, we... We, um, the drummer and the percussionist, had some issues, but they tried to resolve, but it didn't get resolved. And we we never did sit down as a group. You almost need a you need Mediator somebody leading the thing, you know. Yeah, but with traffic, <laughs> you knew it was a one year traffic. Thing. Yeah, traffic was just have fun and let's get out there and play these songs and have some fun. We didn't have any problems with traffic. For someone who loves traffic so much, I'm surprised you live in Athens, not Atlanta. This is. This is my world. This but, is good, though. A little humor is good. Would you like to share any more humor? With or us? would you How like to share some? <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey. <laughs> no, but the traffic, I mean, I don't know if fans of yours today understand. You can go online and watch these, and your playing is wonderful. And and also, when you're not playing, you have the tambourine and the long that hair, and you're jumping up and down. We were just jumping on that song. Ah, it was so much fun. It's so fun we to had watch. We a lot of energy on, on YouTube, tour, you know. It's on YouTube. The whole Woodstock set. There's a few other shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, the DVDs on YouTube. Woodstock made me nervous, and I never get nervous. There's so many people, and I think we came on after the Almond Brothers too. Oh gosh, I <clears> know. <throat> uh, you just don't want to do that. But it, it went over good. But well, Traffic is not a big group in England. We're barely known over there. Really? It's not a big group. That's strange. I mean, they know That's songs that. we don't know, like. What was there? Oh, keep keep on running. That was their big thing over there. I don't even know that song. That's Spencer Davis. <clears throat> yeah. Did you do true. any Spencer Davis stuff other than Give Me Some Lovin'? I don't think so. I don't know. And did that ever get full band improv or just during Low Spark? Ensemble, off the chart, off the... No, it went the same way every night. There's a lot of his stuff that goes the same way every night. Set list can go the same. Sure, for but you you go back and listen. You you take different approaches on the on the low spark solo, especially Woodstock. Mm. Woodstock, it's stretched. Really, it's beautiful. I need to check that out. You Does should sound good. Oh yeah, yes. Because <clears throat> sometimes I've felt like I wasn't really capable of taking it where it needed to go. Do the best you can. I saw eight of those, and they were great. They were great shows. Mm. I loved playing with Travis. That was my most fun times with. So when I first went on that first tour with him, it was all choreographed. They actually had a choreograph. We didn't have to do anything, but they were trying to get Steve to do, move around and do things. Oy. Had a background singer, horns, you know, and he hated it. Uh, it just that kind of stuff is why him. he doesn't tour more. <laughs> yeah, well, he's he just likes to be in the band, you know. He's comfortable being the singer in a band. and uh, he just So they stopped doing that stuff. And Traffic was like the other extreme, just let it loose and... He and Jim had equal voices, equal power, which was confusing sometimes because you didn't know who to follow. <laughs> well, uh, what, who do we do? What I, do we do? I think it could be confusing <clears throat> career-wise, too, because there's these opportunities, and you probably were um, 
offered more things that we don't even know about. But you're a great songwriter and a great frontman of your own band, and you only have so much time. So how did you negotiate through that, uh, uh, sideman versus frontman? Well, it, it was at first it was good because I was just getting back into writing and playing, so it was helping me. And then I, got, I did the Capricorn record, and then I got this deal with New West, and then I was still doing these tours, but it was only every couple of years or three years even that I was going out with Steve until later he started doing more and more. Um, but um, it started interfering with... I, I started thinking, am I going to be... Am I going to put all my energy with Steve or am I going to divide it up and give him all the time and energy or am I going to be a solo artist for real and give it all I got and so I went with that and you're with a label like New West you know they want you to get out and play and I wanted to so I just let it go and it was good I mean I'm not making much money now but it was the right thing to do are you making much money on royalties from anything from the past that uh that you did no I never had a hit record well, the Bonnie had a Grammy. That's the biggest record I ever had. Was the used to rule the world. And when did you start playing with Bonnie Raitt? Um, you did a tour in the 2000s. I don't know what year it was. Whenever she did God Was in the Water <clears throat> on that tour. Oh, two maybe? Maybe so. She asked me to sit in some when she would be around. And then she asked us to open for her. We did a couple of tours with her. Then the next time we did, then she did Used to Rule the World, and we went out with Nick and Seth, and me and Steele went out and played all the way across the country with her. Mm-hmm. So, And while Bonnie's on the table, i got to talk about this, because I love Bonnie Raitt's playing and her career and all that stuff, but, but. what I love about her the most is that she uh, has started a foundation to go back and get some of these artists who got mm-hmm. screwed by the music world and really? get them money. Really? Right. Yeah. Can you she talk about the, that? Well, I don't know details about that except that she started this thing, I believe, and or is a big part of it. And she's always been supportive of, you know, blues players and singer songwriters. It's not just me. There's tons of them that she supports. God bless you, Bonnie. Mm-hmm. Yes, she's the greatest. She's humble and funny and great. Well, you know, our our uh, partner is Live for Live Music. And it's a big jam band website. We got to talk about widespread panic. Is there an elephant in the room? There is an elephant in the room. There's an elephant in the room. It's right over there. That's why I paid extra five dollars. Widespread what? <laughs> Which, ironically, today I spoke at the UGA School of the Music Business Program. That was and, ironic. And, oh God, <laughs> Mister Year Rob Robity, you sure you're Rob in the, right the comedy? Place, right? So we we pull well, we pull up next, you know, in the parking lot. What do you think? And next to us is a widespread course, panic. A widespread panic sticker. I'm just giving you background music. Oh no, no, it's nice. I like it. Widespread panic was there. No, no, no just, uh, just the just sticker. The whole first thing we see no. right when we park. I thought the whole group was just sitting out there. Yeah. Hey, Seth, how you doing? First off, we when love did you, you, man? When did you first meet them? <laughs> I mean, one of them is a stone's throw away from us right now, I think. You'd have to have a good arm. <laughs> but I met them doing, when they were doing their early albums, they would need a horn or something. This was at John Keene's studio. I don't know what year that was. So did Keene... talking about Keene this morning. Yeah, is he the one who linked you up? Yeah, I think so. I think. I mean, I can't remember that far back. You were the sax guy here in Athens, though, yeah? Sort of, yeah. Yeah, and John and I had done records together, and 
you know, known each other forever. So since he was doing them, I think he asked me to come in. And, yeah, it was just sax, I believe. But the interesting thing to me, though, and we've already talked about the bands you played with, when you get on the stage with Widespread for the first time, I mean, they're even looser than a Capaldi traffic, right? <laughs> and is that inspiring to you? Is that, is, is that uncomfortable to you as a player? What, how much of an adjustment was that for you? It's a big adjustment because nobody quite plays like they do. I mean, they, they with Winwood, you know, somebody plays a solo and everybody's playing around them and, and giving them. But with Panic, they're playing a lot of times. They're, they're all playing kind of lead things, not necessarily the main solo, but they're all playing um, stuff um, and they're taking songs, taking uh, jams to places where they don't know where it's going and they're just really going out there and trying things and not just in the solo sections, but maybe at the, you know, a whole, in the end of a section might turn into a whole new song or something. So there, it's the extreme, much more extreme than, than what we were doing with Winwood or anything. They, you know, they just go for it. And I mean, they know how to get out of things and into another song. That's the genius. I never could figure out how Todd would get the tempos and stuff leading into another song after they had just jammed for 15 minutes with no tempo or whatever. He can lead it in and they have all these symbols and things at the end of the songs and kind of tells you whether they're going to go right into the song or they're going to stop or they're going to, you know, so are there points they know where, how to do it. There are points where you just have to stop and step back and let the transition happen and then get yeah, back on. Yeah, yeah, Because Todd's the one that was going to lead, lead it in. And now... At some point, you started putting together the Mega Blasters, which was a full-blown horn section, but you sat in with them alone first a bunch, right? I played the whole time. Mikey was really sick that whole year I played with them, but I sat in with them before that. So was I actually it? went to rehearsals and learned all, like a hundred songs and played that whole tour when he dropped out, when he got sick. Mm-hmm. What was it like to be around a band that's losing one of their closest friends? Uh, yeah, they it still- was intense. It was sad and intense, and like, what should I? Because me and George, the new guitar player, were there. George mm-hmm. McConnell from Beanland. Yeah. So it was like we were waiting in the background for Mikey to leave. It was weird. That is weird, and I'm glad. And but they wanted to continue this tour, and Mike wanted yeah. them. He gave him yeah. the full. Yeah. But it was weird. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad that Jimmy didn't didn't take that place, and that George did, and that Jimmy came in later because I think that Jimmy wouldn't have lasted. The same. I think it needed a transition in that sense. Well, you never want to be the guy after the guy. You want to be the guy after the guy after the guy. Hmm. It's so hard to be the guy after the guy. Maybe so. Yeah. It really is. <clears throat> but it was intense. How, how would they get through? I mean, I, I, I can imagine when I've lost people close to me, you'd never know when the emotional moments are going to come. Yeah. So what if you're about to walk on stage and one of them's like having a moment? Yeah. Did yeah, anything like how, that happen? I don't, I don't know how they did that. I remember we were playing Milwaukee, uh, the Summerfest, and that's the first call that I got to me and George, like, y'all are up now because Mikey's not going to be playing this with us. It's like, oh, my God. <clears throat> and it was scary and, like, odd that we are going to come and take his place. And, you know, it was just... But I didn't, you know, they held, they, they, I thought they handled it as if they're going to do the tour and he wants to do the tour, 
they did it as respectfully and as mm-hmm. smoothly as they could. And, you know, they got a lot. No, a lot going on with them. They're good folks, and they they're they know, strong they've people. Been together. Yeah, and they've been together so long through so much, and they handle it really well. And do you find um, moving forward now that that you have this strong relationship with the band, uh, and now that you know not just with the band, but you're playing with the band, the fans are exposed to you. Are, are these fans crossing over and checking out your other music, and are you finding that <clears> widespread <throat> panic fans are at you know your Eddie's Attic show or wherever you might yeah, be? I just use Eddie's as an example. Some, but it's still mostly. Like it depends on where you play too. Like in mm-hmm. Charlotte, we could play the Rabbit Hole or something. There'd be a lot of kids that are going to be widespread fans that go to that club but most of the places we play are places you know they're places that are the singer songwriter listening places or <laughs> juke joint kind of places more but, likely in a juke joint kind of place yeah but <laughs> no, not yeah, for the we playing, do we have the, you know <laughs> we have picked up but our music is not like widespread panic no and, right you know they they would move over to jerry joseph or something yeah or people like that that are much more that they identify with. But I would say with this new album and with, I assume, some of the, maybe a little more extemporaneous playing than in the past, maybe what you're doing now is a little more conducive. And with the fact that the widespread panic fan base is aging, becoming more mature, I have firsthand experience in that. It's much more pleasant going to see widespread now than it was 15 or so years ago fan-wise. Especially if you're going to places like the Dominican or Mexico. That's quite enjoyable. Well, we'll take yeah. your word for it. I'm not... You can take Randall's <laughs> word for it, too. It is nice down there. I'm, once I like I'm... the Kayamo cruise that was just on, though. That was fun. I'll comment on singer, any of these things as soon as I'm invited. Singer, songwriter. That's the six-man cruise, yeah? Yeah. Is that Delbert? But, no. No, no. But you did do Delbert's. Yeah, years ago. But uh, the Kayamo is strictly uh, it's a bunch. It's like a big, rolling, floating house concert, you know, with lots of great people. Emmy Lou was there, Rodney Crowell. Larry Campbell? No. Teresa Williams, no. Steve Earle. Steve Earle, Paul Thorne, all kind of people. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the Panic crowd is not going to necessarily come to us because the Panic experience is totally different. Sure. Even though we might jam a little bit, it's not like a Panic thing. No, but I don't, I don't think you'll get a large <clears throat> amount of them, but I'm just saying that maybe... We do get some that the, come up. Well, yeah. you'll get a larger sliver because maybe. the new album is more more about the band and more about ensemble playing. That's so, all I'm saying. So in other words, widespread Panic fans, if you're listening, we highly suggest to... Check if you're going to check out Randall, check out the new album. And check out Nick Johnson, Randall Bramlett. It's one Mike big Steel. jam. It's just a big jam. <laughs> But let's continue. The lights, the lights. (laughs) Except on the Alaska shows. Don't expect lights in the Alaska show. Um, So you left. They went on with with George without you for a while, right? You didn't stay on for the fall. That's right. And then you came. Quit like it right before Christmas. Oh, I didn't realize you quit. I just thought you just it just was a temporary thing. It was. I don't mean I quit. Quit. I mean I quit. I'm out of here. They didn't really want me to continue, and I. It was not a permanent thing. But you, but, but the Mega Blasters thing happened shortly after that, right? And, well, and, they just use us, you know, as special events, you know, New Year's and Halloween or whatever. Sure. That's, but, that's just, yeah, we put together that horn section. and You put it together? Yeah. And do you chart out the horns for them and everything? I used to, but now they all do it with their own laptop programs that so, I don't understand. When you used to, though, would you have to chart them out and then get appro- rehearse, get approval from them and then change stuff? Or were they just, they take your chart and go with it? What Are you, you talking about up? the horns or panic? The horns with panic. <clears throat> did did you have to run 
what you charted for the horns through widespread. Because the horns, you're they writing... They always a, liked it. Really? That's oh, cool. Oh, yeah. You didn't have to change anything, really. But we would have to learn their structure because it was going to be different mm-hmm. than what we had originally heard on the record because they've already changed it. You know, so we, you know there would be a whole other section or how do you get out of this song, you know. Yeah. Things like that we would always have to change. But in, in general, they like what we do. But at the same time, I've noticed with Panic is, <clears throat> is that when they when there's horns there, in particular the Dirty Dozen Brass Band, uh, they tend to play a little different. For example, well, with Jimmy, I should emphasize, uh, the band transitions into a jazz ensemble, essentially. I mean, a funky one at that, but but they, they're... They became much better improvisers. Yeah, I think much clean. Mm. The, the improvisation is much cleaner. Mm. Um, the jams are much more precise. It's not all outer space and all this. It's it has a little bit of uh, different drive. Yeah. But also with Jimmy, Jimmy. When, I mean, I noticed this with you and Jimmy uh, in particular. It, it allows him to play a little bit more on his jazz side, and his and his voice changes within the band, hmm. and it's a totally different band at that point. Wow. Um, so that's my observation there. Have you ever been in, uh, asked to do more with them or to become a permanent member or do more frequently stuff with them? No. They, um, you know, they're doing them. They got their own thing down and they just asked me to get their horns together for special things. And that's, that's the way it should be. I wish they covered you more. They used to do Get In, Get Out. Yeah, when I was playing with them, we did that. And you and JB would share the vocals or JB yeah. would just sing it? And we did God Was In The Water too. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. How many times did you do that? I don't know, maybe five. Break them back out in that roll, roll, roll. I could see widespread tearing that. See, stuff Bruce, up. Bruce uh, loves that song. Colonel Bruce. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the way, I mentioned you in our interview. We just released an episode today talking about the Hampton Seventy, right? And uh-huh. I mentioned, I recommend. I said, get Randall Bramlin on this thing, and got glared at because you're not supposed to do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna be that's gonna be something. Malacatra. Malasutra, Malacatra, no one seen the likes of you Always running in the background, always hiding in the everlasting daylight Malacatra, Malasutra, Malacatra, no one seen the likes of you Always turning, always changing, always hiding in the everlasting And that was Randall Bramlett, and he was kind enough, first of all, to allow us into his home in order to conduct the interview, and now he's taking time for a follow-up phone air. How's it going, Randall? It's going good, and, you know, not that much stuff was missing after you guys left. It was 
unusual. <laughs> just Except one, one, just one vinyl, vinyl that, that Rob will not let me live. <laughs> <laughs> Some pieces of clothing, electronic gear, <laughs> laptops. Other than that, it was good. Uh, also, I did take that one toy for my son, but... Um... Yeah, I noticed. <laughs> but, you know, I figured... I figured that was okay. But it's for the children. And I got the Vegas, <laughs> and I got the Vegas traffic soundboards, so that's cool. <laughs> you guys are funny. So first of all, um, you just played the Vista Room here in Atlanta, Georgia. And love that room. Love that, it. I love it. And let's get right into that because traditionally you've played, and we love Eddie's attic, but it's a seated room. It's more. It's a listening room of sorts. And although that can be nice, isn't it better to have people offering a physical response and dancing in front of you for a musician? I like it more. I mean, some people are, are totally into the listening crowd, but I love to see people dancing and getting into it. And it gives us a lot of energy back, you know, and we can use that sometimes, all the time, actually. So it turns into just a fun party, you know, but the good thing about the Vista Room is people are also listening. It's oh, not yeah. just a party. You know, there are people seated listening, too. So it's a good balance for us. It's really perfect for us. Mm-hmm. And in the interview, you said that you really want to push the envelope and do more stretching with the band and, and more improvising. And yep. to be honest with you, Randall, when you said it, I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, a lot of musicians say that and don't do it. But the Vista Room evidence that you were 100% serious. Uh, yeah, yeah. Serious yeah, we were going out, and that's... You know, that's, to me, that's the fun of it, really. I mean, playing the songs straight is fun, too, but, you know, we got to open it up, and we got people that can do it, so let's do it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I tried to, I, I meant to talk to you during the break, but I uh, I just didn't have the time now. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't see Although it. I had a nice chat with Nick. Oh, you did? And it was, yeah, and it was great to see May there, so... Oh, I was out talk- signing CDs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's like nonstop. Did you see, did you, did it seem like there were a lot of people who hadn't seen that specific band? I mean, they'd seen you otherwise, but not your band? Um, yeah, there were some people there that, you know, that I hadn't seen before and that maybe had seen me solo or something like that. I don't know, but there was, it was a great mix of people. I mean, I knew a good many people there, but there was a lot of people I'd never seen. Which was and a little, a little birdie told me you'll be back there in the fall, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I think it's a great place for us. Yeah, I agree. Now, it's a the the new room of Atlanta. Um, there's so many new venues, but that one just has it has a certain a certain vibe to it that just really works for uh, the music you're putting out there and, and the clientele that they have there. It's a it, it, there's a there's a good space for it and, and a well needed one. Yeah, and I would see. say it's an ideal spot for us. That that kind of place where it's a good mix of people just having fun, people listening. And let's face it, that room's been Hamptonized, which leads yes. to the reason <laughs> for this call. Because since since you kindly let us into your home, and what, we're going to be coming back uh, uninvited next time. Good, but we won't be bringing we won't be bringing our dog. But anyway, since. <laughs> Yeah, one's enough. Since, I can't handle um, anymore. I know. It can be tough. Same here. I, although I'm going to have two now, but that's another story. But since we spoke with you, 
we've lost three musicians that you knew well that are dear to the Georgia music scene and music scene in general, but extremely dear to Georgia. And we, could we start with Colonel Bruce Hampton? You, you, you spoke about him briefly in the interview about how he recommended Nick Johnson to you. But can you talk about when you first met Colonel, maybe some of your earliest memories playing with him, and then maybe some of your most recent? Well, I guess we passed and we met, you know, just briefly back in the 70s. But I was, you know, we were on different, we were always playing in different places. And then we didn't, we didn't cross paths that much until Panic um, started. When they started having him guest and me guest, um, you know, we got to know each other a little better. And then, by the time the La Playa thing started happening, we were in the band together there, so we got to hang out more and more and, um, you know, run into each other a lot more, too, just at various gigs in Atlanta. So it just, I got to know him more toward the end of his life than I, than I did early on. I was listening to his records early on, but I wasn't, I didn't get to know him till later. When you were on the Capricorn, oh, go ahead. I was supposed to go to the thing at the Fox, his last show, and uh, family stuff came up for me, and we had some confusion about whether or not I was, I didn't know if I for sure was supposed to be there. Anyway, I didn't go, uh, but luckily I had told uh, somebody and that, and they spoke to him, and they told him, and I wish I could be there. So it, at least I got some communication to him before he died. Mm-hmm. That felt better. But um, I felt bad that it wasn't there. But on the other hand, I don't know if I could take it, you know. Yeah, it was heavy. That's just too strange. It was a tad bizarre. Huh? It was a tad bizarre. Oh, yeah. If if bizarre is bizarre, I mean, it's beyond bizarre, Rob. I I wouldn't say tad. I mean, it was, it's, uh, I I still wake up and and I'm like, did that really just happen? Did that happen? I mean, it's going to take years to, to... I don't know. To get it. I find I've come to grips with his side of the loss <laughs> and the way he passed. But I find also that I things happen or I see things or learn things, particularly about baseball, and I'll think, Oh, I can't wait to tell Colonel and then right. I realize he's gone and that's much more for Seth mm-hmm. than myself because Seth knows him really well. Seth's had some pretty tough moments actually, even since we did our little tribute isn't that true Seth? oh absolutely i mean you know like like i mentioned to you the other day and like we all say i think we've all come to terms with him not being here like the the fact that he the way he passed we've come to terms with the, the passing of colonel but the fact right. that he's not here is the hardest thing because you know yeah, I, I, know. I, I mean we, we we look at our phones and we're not getting that that call you know right you know the the, the, um, the it's seven o'clock at night he says 707 meet me at the it's like wait when i can't meet you in six <laughs> man what are you, you know, like, what are you doing? Uh, just like the random i know text. you always knew you could call him too you know, just, yeah just pick up the phone and call him and he'd pick up and and he would, would always good. pick up yeah. and it doesn't matter where he was yeah. to be with <laughs> <laughs> I'm like crazy. Yeah, you think he, are you in an airplane? He goes, no, I'm just making noises. <laughs> God, what a what a mind, what a sense of humor. Yeah. The guy, he's like no other. Now, I have met a lot of rock musicians, including Jerry Garcia, but I'll tell you, Randall, I've never met a rock musician that had more of an aura and a presence, and I was more in awe of them when I was in front of Greg Allman. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you met him when you were playing with Cowboy, and you backed his band in the 70s. And mm-hmm. you speak about that in our in our interview, but 
I was wondering if you have any specific memories or any specific stories about, you know, the, uh, I know he could be a, he had a good little sense of humor, you know, and he could, he, he was very playful at times for, for a guy that seemed very stoic, right? Yeah, he's, he's actually very witty, very funny guy. Um, but, you know, Greg was in, um, Tommy Talton knew him much better than I did, because uh, Greg was in, when we were doing the solo things, he was in a different world, you know. Um, I mean, we didn't hang much, you know. We would run into each other in a hotel room or something when he was passing through, you know, various things like that, and, and in rehearsals and all. But, um, you know, I, I knew I, I got to chat with Greg more later on, too, as uh, more than early on, um, because we would run into each other at festivals and, you know, we would, we played a couple of shows like at the Atlanta Symphony thing we did with chuck and you know just talking backstage um you know at various festivals and all i got to you know hang out a little bit more with him but um i mean i i sent him a text you know because i called chank the guys you know was kind of looking after him and, and i knew he was going down and chank said yeah send him a text he can't talk send him a text um and maybe he'll get back with you, but he just never did. So I just told him all the, um, you know, how much I appreciated all the opportunities he's given me and the great music and, you know, oncoming traffic, uh, just standing backstage with him, listening to him play that every night. It was just moving, beautiful stuff. Mm -hmm. And then and not he to mention the Almond Brothers. Yeah. He brought that Which song I, back at the 2009 Beacon Run a couple times. That's what I heard. That's what I heard. Did you ever get a sense of how he viewed his own fame? Was it something he was wary of? Or was it something he was comfortable with? Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure really. Um, he seemed to. I mean, after Dwayne died. You know, he had to take the whole thing on. So I think it was not comfortable for him then. Hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know how much he liked being the focus of the group and the last almond, you know, that must have been tough. <clears throat> and, you know, so I, I, but, you know, I never talked to him about that. So I just got the feeling about that. And I wonder for, for... Was hard to step into those shoes, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go ahead, wonder, yeah, I wonder for for uh, to be close in the in the in the inner circle. What what would have, would have been harder to have someone like Bruce, where he just disappears? You know, one day he's here, the next day completely gone, uh, Houdini style. Right. Or in the Greg with Greg Allman, you know, we all knew it was coming. Sure, there was the announcement he was in hospice or not, but for the last year, you know, the elevator was going down. And yeah. it really, like you said, you had the opportunity to say goodbye. You knew you were you were able to say goodbye. Right. Uh, and, right. and I wonder right. what that what that closure, uh, the the difference of that closure is, or if there is any difference, really. Yeah, there is. I mean, it, it's so much. Um, it feels so much better to let someone go after you've said what you wanted to say to them, mm -hmm. or at least said some of it. You know. Um, Otherwise, it's just like cut off, bam, that's it. You never got to say anything, you know. So it, it helps to be able to just voice a little bit of whatever it is, appreciation or 
you know, respect or gratitude or whatever. Yeah. It helps <clears throat> to let the person go and to feel okay with him going. Do you have an overriding memory of a specific memory of your time playing in his band? Um, I mean, listening to him count songs off, he counted one off wrong one night. It was really funny. <clears throat> I mean, he had, this is a good example of his sense of humor because he thought we were starting Queen of Hearts, I think, and he was reading the set list wrong, and it, it was something in four, but Queen is in six, so he, he counted one, two, three, one, two, three. And, nobody, and the orchestra hit like, crank. a couple of people hit a note because nobody knew what the hell was going on counting off this in six because it was the wrong song. So once he realized it because a couple of people hit notes and nobody started, he looked at the audience and he said, uh, uh, just practicing my count-offs. <laughs> <laughs> then, he counted, then he counted one, two, three, four, you know, for whatever that next song was. So everybody laughed about that for a long time. Just practicing my count off. So sounds like <laughs> that's pretty quick, man. It's actually similar to a show-oriented story, but we won't get into that. Let's get into Jimmy Knowles because um, the, the, the Almond Brothers fans around here in Georgia who are, who are also into jazz, they just love sea level. They're always talking. They're always speculating. We're always not going to have an album. Always wanted. Or the reunion, and um, and although you and Chuck do some of their songs, you know, pe people always wanted it to happen again, but then I, I've just learned that he had had Parkinson's for a while. Uh, yeah. He had become an engineer. I guess his last playing was with Paul Stuckey and Peter, Paul, and Mary. Is that correct? I guess that was his last real kind of gig. He hasn't and been now, well for many years. But, but what are, mm -hmm. when did you meet him, and what are some of your memories of him? And he, as a matter of fact, he and uh, Chuck, I believe, were the only two members of C-Level that were in the band the entire run, right? That's right. That's right. Because uh, when I met him, um, I mean, I, I guess I, I hadn't met him. I'm not sure if I met him before Chuck started C-Level or not. I might have run into him in Macon, but... Um, I met him after I joined Sea Level, of course, and Sea Level was Jamo and Lamar, and and then Jimmy and Chuck, and they had their thing going for their first record, and it was really cool. I liked it, and I loved Jimmy's play, and he had a real particular style, um, and great technician, and just good feel and good tone and everything, and real funny and likable guy, very likable, and um, you know so. Um, I got to know him, and we traveled together a lot, and hung out together a lot at sea level. And he was, he was just fun and always positive, and you know, just ready to play. You know, let's play. How was it to improvise with him? Great, but you know, it was mostly him and Davis. You know, um, squaring off with each other and playing off each other. Um, but I always loved the way Jimmy. You know, he he could play these great, fast, beautiful lines of melody. <clears throat> and he could also play blues. Um, you know, so he and Davis were perfect. Davis was, um, you know, they just fed each other back and forth. I guess a little bit like Dickie and Dwayne, but different styles. But Jimmy was just, he was just a special 
positive person. And when he got Parkinson's, it really, you know, of course, knocked him for a loop. And he, he had just trying to deal with that kind of stuff. It just takes it all out of you. Last time I saw him was that I was playing in Nashville at Music City Roots uh, with my group. And he wanted to come out and we got him. His daughter brought him out in a wheelchair. You know, it was... I was glad to see him, but he couldn't stay long. It was kind of sad, you know. Yeah. Just couldn't get up and move around. So, you know, we had talked occasionally on the phone with that. You know, he was he was a unique, beautiful guy. When was the last time you performed with him? Uh, that's a good question. I guess it was sea level in the early eighties. Really? I mean, we we might have, um, I might have played, uh, well, I might have played a little bit on a record, but we didn't actually perform together, I don't believe. I mean, I might be missing one, but I don't think we did. Well, there was a project that was released just before he passed called the Jimmy Knowles mm -hmm. Project. I think mm -hmm. folks should look into this. Joe Bonamassa, Buddy Green, Dave Douglas, uh, excuse me, Dave Duncan, Jimmy Hall, Robin Ford, Robin Ford, Gary Nicholson, yeah. Warren Haynes, Jack Pearson, Larry Carlton, uh, and others are on it. JimmyKnollsProject.com. We'll tweet out about it as well, folks. Please look into that. You, are you familiar with that project, Randall? Yeah. I mean, I know that they did it. I don't know if I have a copy of it or not. <clears throat> but <clears throat> I know he was talking about they were doing that thing. And the proceeds go to Jimmy's wife, Minnie, Minnie Nolls, mm -hmm. which is a great name, and their family. It is. And yeah. So yeah. please, please support that by the CD. Great yes, music. Yeah. Yes. Great guy. All great right, family. All right. Well, Randall, thanks Thank for you. joining us uh, on the outro here. And of course, for your full in depth interview here in the beginning of the show. Uh, we look forward to catching you soon. And uh, Rob, do you have any closing words? Yes. My closing words are Randall. I loved you in traffic. I loved you as, as a sideman, all this stuff, but it's when you are in front doing your songs that I like you the most. Oh, Please that makes me feel it. good. I will. I will keep doing it. It makes me feel good to, to do that stuff, too, and thanks for saying that. Absolutely. Hope to have you on again when the next record comes out. Good. Okay. And, uh, and we're going to call you um, next time about three births of Georgia musicians. Yes. That's much better. Yes. No kidding. Let's <laughs> let's talk about that. All right. Take care, okay. Randall. All right, guys. All right, thanks, everybody. We'll see, we'll see you next time. I got this idea, this picture of this. Um, this song started because I was reading a Kerouac. I think it was on the road. And they went down to visit um, William S. Burroughs down in Algiers, across the river from New Orleans. And it was a mess, you know. They, it, it was, they were a mess. Heroin and uh, his wife was hooked on Benzedrine, so she was uh, scrubbing the floor with a toothbrush. He later shot her, you know, killed her by accident in a William Tell kind of uh, incident where he was trying to shoot an apple off her head. Long story, but uh, things were not good down there. So uh, anyway, this song... <laughs> I was thinking about people in a mess down there. It's called Dead in the Water. I've run
run out of gas on the Huey Long Bridge And the moon was drowning in the mud Don't think about walking back to town Don't think about jumping, it's too far down You know you're dead in the water Hiding in a whisper tree Well, preach on a corner Shouting to an empty street Well, mama been flying Drinking that Benzedrine You know she's scrubbing the floor with a toothbrush But she just can't get it clean No, no You know she's dead in the water In a whisper tree Well, preacher on a corner Shouting to an empty street shot glass while a black wind howls while a police scowl staring at the night sky while you're making up a good lie when the lights come on you got to be strong better think of something sweet before they put you in the back seat don't you know that you're dead in the water in a whisper tree Well, preacher on the corner Shouting to an empty street Think of something strong before they put you in the back seat.
my baby through the parking lot. Jump the churchyard fence down the alley with the old trash cans. Me and my baby waiting on the garbage man. Hey man, hey man, what you doing with all that junk? You know I clean up everybody's mess and take it to the county dump. Hey man, hey man, what happens then? You know I get up in the morning and do it all over again. Yeah. Down by the railroad tracks, make a plywood bridge over the swamp out back. Tadpoles growing legs, did you ever see such a thing? Love is such a mystery, you know it made me want to sing. Come on, hey man, hey man, what you doing with all that junk? You know I clean up everybody's mess, take it to the county dump. Get on the back of that truck. 